Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. This episode continues the story of Jersey Joe Walcott. The previous parts are contained within the trilogy of my Christmas episodes, Cole for Jersey Joe and Cakewalker Part 1, Grotesque Dancer in the Garden. You may also be interested in Their Bloody Valentine to hear more about Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake LaMotta who are also mentioned in this episode. Otherwise, if you're all up to date, please proceed. Thirteenth of January, nineteen forty-eight, at the Cleveland Arena, and Archie Moore is resting in his corner of the boxing ring after a hard seventh round. Moore, born Archibald Lee Wright, is already emerging as a figure of mystique. His climb up the ranks has been slow and painful. He's fought like a nomad, travelling all over the USA by train and in a beaten-up car, and has even fought in Australia, where he says he picked up a mysterious diet. He's also retired once, after being operated on in 1941. Along the way, he's learned how to develop as a highly sophisticated fighter, as well as cultivate the mystery around him. This is Moore's 111th fight, and at 34 years of age, it's quite clear he's picked up more than his fair share of tricks. He's also earned a nickname, the Mongoose, which becomes the Old Mongoose, demonstrating his willingness and wide range of techniques. Rather apt, it seems that his opponent bears the moniker of the mongoose's mortal enemy, the cobra. From the Panchatantra to Rudyard Kipling's short story Ricky Tikki Tavi, the story of how the mongoose can defeat the fearsome cobra is well known the world over. The cobra, in its wild state, has long been recognised as a predator feared in human society due to the instant death it can deal out in seconds and the fact that its physical size and shape enables it to be concealed from sight. No such fear exists for the mongoose. By contrast, the species is often kept as a pet and as a means to keep away rats. Much like the man that bears its totem, the mongoose is extremely adaptable to different environments. Just as Archie Moore has regularly appeared on the radars of boxing fans, so the mongoose pops up in a wide variety of places. And just as Archie Moore enjoys a sense of mystery, so scientists admit that not a lot is known about the mongoose's natural history. On the surface, it seems like an unlikely matchup. The cobra is the physical embodiment of ruthless efficiency. Human culture derives metaphors like cold-blooded from the class of animal where they belong, the reptiles. However, 
It is more specifically the reptilian brain that other species should fear. Devoid of complex and distracting conscious thought patterns, it strikes with a single and direct purpose. When it bites, the cobra's razor-sharp fangs easily penetrate the hides of many mammals. Most species of true cobras, that is those who belong to the Nadja genus and the type that would naturally encounter mongooses, inject strong neurotoxic venom, making their bite fatal to humans and most other mammals. However, this is not the case with the mongoose. In addition to its stiff rigid hair and thick loose skin, the animal possesses specialised acetylcholine receptors that makes it immune from snake venom. If the hero versus villain drama wasn't perfect enough, with a small furry mammal never growing larger than 17 inches overcoming the hooded, fanged, venomous, scaly-skinned menace of the cobra, then seeing the acrobatic series of baiting traps it sets in order to wear out its adversaries is action cinema gold. Similarly, Archie Moore will be known throughout his career for the traps he sets and the wide range of strategies he will use to confound his opponents. His signature cross-arm guard, later to be called the lock by his son Billy and often the shell by Moore, is just the surface of a range of tools at his disposal. Within a decade, the world middleweight champion Gene Fulmer will adapt the guard into a type of battering ram. Future world champions Smokin' Joe Frazier and Ken Jawbreaker Norton will famously use it to bob and weave their way past Muhammad Ali's defences. The Philly Shell defence, which will gain notoriety in the 21st century, care of the multi-divisional world champion Floyd Mayweather Jr., is arguably a variation on this guard. The guard is not Moore's invention. It appears to have been taught to him by his trainer, Hiawatha Gray, who still had one foot in the historic bare-knuckle ancestry of modern boxing. Early and mid-19th century treatises on boxing show the cross-armed guard as a means for defending or barring against the powerful single straight punches of the time. The face and the much sought-after solar plexus, known as the mark by contemporary pugilists, are strongly protected. By the turn of the 20th century, it was used as a rare horizontal alternative to the emerging staggered or parallel higher guards that were adopted when punching combinations had just started to become more common. By the 1930s, after Gray had fought his last professional fight and had begun coaching, other notable fighters were occasionally bringing in cross-armed defences. Both Max Baer and Max Schmeling resorted to cross-armed defences at times, and Paulino Uzzikadon used it quite a lot. Archie Moore, however, took it to an entirely different level. He made it a more comprehensive shell against his era of opponents' greater variety of punches and combinations by pulling back and sinking into his rear hip. With his chin tucked behind his lead shoulder and that side's elbow up, he could not only shield against straight punches but also deflect hooks. Moore then added in level changes and rolling which obscured his opponent's line of sight whilst offering him opportunities to sneak in punches from different angles. Archie Moore will add to his aura of mystery nearly every time a member of the press speaks to him. Seven years from today, he will describe his system of tactics and strategies as escapology. The term is popularly associated with the stunts of the great illusionist, Harry Houdini, but Moore will appropriate it without a blink to explain how he tries to build bridges with every punch he throws so that he always has an escape route. This sophisticated system provided counters for every combination or single punch thrown, as well as various feints and adaptations for different types of fighters. Not being blessed with exceptional speed or an iron chin, Moore makes up for all this by becoming a calculating monster that will lead him to once being the oldest man to win the light heavyweight championship. 
having one of the longest careers in boxing history, spanning four decades and claiming the greatest recorded number of knockout wins at 131. His intelligence and knowledge of the game will be further demonstrated by the legacy he will leave, not just by the number of fighters who seem to mimic or readapt his style, but by actual protégés. Sandy Sadler, one of the greatest featherweights of all time, is an early example and Sadler will convey some of this wisdom to George Foreman during Big George's early career. Then, when George Foreman makes his big comeback some 20 years after losing the World Heavyweight Championship, he will look no further than the old mongoose to learn how to win back his title. The glory of Archie Moore lies in his future. Little of it will show tonight. For the story of the Cobra and the Mongoose is not going to play out in its usual way. This is the third time Moore has faced the Cobra that now moves across the ring with an intense glare in its eye. He has yet to best him in the ring. On the two previous occasions, these light heavyweights have clashed. The Cobra has emerged victorious. The first time, the Cobra dominated with a unanimous 10-round decision and Moore had slipped behind him in the rankings. When they met again last year, this time on the Cobra's home turf of Cincinnati, the Mongoose had fought a far closer affair, losing to a majority decision and ending up on the canvas once in round eight. This fight had seen the Cobra win the first round by landing some hard right hands. Round two had seen the Mongoose strike back with a right to the ear. Round three looked like it was Moore's as well, as the frustrated Cobra was penalised for low blows. By round five, the Cobra was pressing the fight, but it was a truly dangerous game to play. Moore worked best as a counterpuncher. Like his apt mongoose totem, he knew how to bait and spring his traps. Keeping the momentum going through round six and into seven, it seemed that the mongoose was in trouble before he unleashed a powerful counter. Adding insult to injury, Moore landed a blow after the bell and intensified his opponent's rage. Now, in round eight, the Cobra had made his decision. On the orders of his corner... He would set a trap for the trapper. Two-thirds of the way into the round and the mongoose bloodied his opponent's mouth. He followed it up with a smashing left hook to the ear and a powerful straight right. The cobra seemed to have been shaken by the two hard punches and moved into the ropes. He looked shook and prone to be finished. Moore moved in to finish the fight. The trap was sprung and two punches, a sharp left hook followed by a sweeping right hand sends a mouthpiece flying and the mongoose to his knees. This time, he won't beat the count. Instead, he collapses from his knees to his back, where he tries in vain to grip the middle rope. After 20 seconds, his corner will help him to his feet. Although his long, hard-fought story will eventually lead to glory in the light heavyweight ranks and acclaim in the heavier division, he will never face this man again. The man in question, the Cobra from Cincinnati, has a different destiny. Despite never winning the world light heavyweight title that his rival will earn, he will be considered by many boxing experts to be the greatest light heavyweight of all time. He will claim yet more victories on his path of destruction to glory. However, by then, his eyes will be set on a bigger prize. The man is Ezard Mac Charles, and he wants to be the heavyweight champion of the world. Cakewalker, Part 2, Rise of the Cincinnati Cobra. 
1974 until 1978, PBS television will do its best to both tap into the nostalgia of the so-called greatest and silent generations, as well as provide a history lesson to the boomers about America's golden age of sport. The way it was will broadcast edited footage of great sporting events from the 40s to the early 60s, whilst interviewing the key sports people involved. There will be little subtlety in the way it will encourage the cosy reminiscence of a bygone era, from its use of the well-worn decades-old musical standard Happy Days Are Here Again, pretty much the anthem for American nostalgia, to the sit-down chats with greying athletes talking about their glorious pasts. Decades on, and the show will become a piece of 70s boomer nostalgia in its own right. On the 3rd of April 1977, Jersey Joe Walcott, and Joe Lewis will sit down to discuss their boxing rivalry with the host, Kurt Gowdy, on this particular show, whereas other boxing rivals will laugh off the intense competitiveness and even personal dislike for each other, conducting themselves as mutually respectful elderly statesmen who have long since buried the hatchet. There will be a discernible tension between Walcott and Lewis, even after all this time. They will re-watch highlights of their World Heavyweight Championship bout on the 5th of December 1947, where the crowds of the 3rd Madison Square Garden were treated to the unique footwork, feints and cakewalk of Jersey Joe. The footage will show the two famous knockdowns that not only shocked the champion, but also shook the world of boxing fans. Then, just prior to the commercial break, the commentator Don Dunphy will add to the drama of Harry Ballow's announcement of a split decision win in favour of Joe Lewis by describing the indignant response of the live audience. The aforementioned tension will only arise after the break when Joe Lewis will provide a perspective threatening to dilute the sugary side of the bittersweet fairy tale of a wronged Walcott. At the time, and for years to come, many will see the champion's actions of trying to leave the ring before Barlow delivers the verdict as an act of disgust and belief that he had lost the bout. Lewis will confirm, I was disgusted at myself. I know I boxed a bad fight, but I also know Walcott did a lot of running too. He will state that it never crossed his mind that he had to stay in the ring and await the verdict. Despite having been present when the loud boos were sounded and hearing Dumphy's commentary, Lewis will appear oblivious to there being any controversy over the verdict. He will say that even though he felt he had fought badly, he always believed you had to take the championship from the champion. As far as Lewis could see, Walcott did not engage enough to have won the fight. When it's Jersey Joe's time, Walcott will immediately confirm that his corner had told him he had won at least 10 of the rounds when he began cakewalking in rounds 13 to 15 and moves quickly to express his surprise at hearing Lewis's words regarding the verdict. He looks to Lewis and minds to display the type of respectful reverence towards the fighter that so many of the greater boxers' contemporaries will display. He refers to the Brown Bomber as the champ and then, turning to his old opponent, will describe Lewis's post-verdict actions of walking across to his corner to hold his hand and say, I'm sorry, Joe, as a real privilege and a high honour for him to be honest about the outcome. When Kurt Gowdy questions Lewis about his apology to Walcott, the old ex-champion keeps his eyes forward and away from Jersey Joe as he nonchalantly dismisses it with the words, I tell everybody that. 
Walcott isn't so easily brushed off or convinced that this was a standard Joe Lewis post-fight consolation. His posture will still be pointed towards the great respected ex-champion as he asks with clear incredulity, Are you serious, Joe? The brown bomber, his eyes still on Gaudi, or perhaps towards the legacy he hopes to preserve, will fire back, I'm serious. Finally, turning away with a mildly derisive chuckle, Jersey Joe will say, You can't be. Lewis will quickly lighten the mood with a well-meant dig at Walcott's age. Jersey Joe, reading the mood, will immediately clasp his old rival's wrist and clap him on the shoulder as the two will laugh together like old drinking buddies. Gaudi will quickly wrap up this short-lived debate by stating the now obvious stance struck by the two men. They both felt, in their own hearts, they'd won the fight. Gaudi will then move on to Joe Lewis's intentions at the time to retire. This seemed to have been the plan but Lewis knew he had to face Jersey Joe again. At the end of 1947, he doesn't realise how big his financial problems will be before the decade is out, as the IRS will press him for taxes on the bouts he fought for the war effort. This is money he didn't have to spare thanks to bad business adventures and the generosity he'd shown to his friends and family. Ted Jones, Lewis's tax accountant, believed that the $196,000 the IRS said was overdue for 1946 should have been cancelled out by the $194,000 loss he had made in business. This was not the way the IRS wanted to play it, and this was just scratching the surface. Besides, these looming financial problems, and regardless of whether or not he was aware of the public opinion on his last fight, Lewis knew that he didn't want to leave his sport with a recent performance on his record. A year after his appearance on The Way It Was, he will report in his autobiography, quote, I won, but it wasn't good. The crowd booed the decision, and I felt like a piece of shit. All these thoughts about retiring disappeared. I knew I had to meet Jersey Joe Walcott again to erase the doubts, end quote. Indeed, even if Lewis had been deaf to the boos and jeering from the crowd when the verdict was read, He couldn't ignore his mother, whose phone call he had taken in his apartment after the fight. She had been worried about him during the bout and said, I thought that would have been the last fight, but I know you've got to go in there and fight that boy. If this wasn't enough, he'll be unable to avoid hearing about the letters being sent to the mayor, newspapers, the governor and the New York State Athletic Commission complaining about the verdict. As far as the public were concerned, Jersey Joe Walcott had been robbed. Jimmy Cannon, a New York Post journalist, tracked down Joe Lewis days after the fight. Lewis had retreated to his territory in Harlem, where he'd been laying low. He went over the fight for three hours, never once mentioning Jersey Joe's name. His frustration with Walcott's obscure style was obvious. He told Cannon that Jersey did so many wrong things. I saw every opening, but I couldn't get to him. Lewis then went on to say that he almost killed himself trying to shed four pounds and had been dehydrated on the night of the fight, but then added, there ain't no excuse. Two days after the interview, Joe Lewis appeared at the opening of a new nightclub. With the Joe Lewis punch drink already on the market, the nightclub was another business venture that would lose him more money. Those who attended the opening were quick to ask about whether he was going to fight again. He announced that there would be one more fight. Everyone knew this had to be the rematch with Jersey Joe, but Lewis's team were already in arguments with Walcott's over the financial terms of the bout, and the champion had to play it cool in public. He said the fight might be the anticipated rematch, but he also might give a shot to the current light heavyweight champion, another New Jersey resident, the pride of Cliffside, 
Gus Lesnovich. When asked whether he had enough money to retire, a grinning Lewis replied, Yeah, I can always go back to the Ford plant. I'm on leave of absence. Decades later, Joe Lewis will later reflect, quote, This was the first time in my fighting profession the fans weren't with me. These boos went right down to my bones. I felt depression I had never felt before. It was one hell of a way to end the year, end quote. In 1977, Gaudi and his two guests will turn their eyes back to this unavoidable and inevitable rematch. So we find ourselves at Yankee Stadium on the 25th of June, 1948. It's round three and Jersey Joe has seen his moment. For the first two rounds, Lewis and Walcock have fought an uninteresting fight of little engagement. The champion is determined not to chase the challenger around the ring this time, but Jersey Joe was also well aware of the danger that lurked if he went toe-to-toe with the Brown Bomber. Dan Florio had seen what had worked in the first match and wanted his man to stick to the plan. The only way he could conceive Walcott could defeat Joe Lewis. Again, Jersey Joe will faint, shuffle, walk away and cakewalk around the champion. Jersey Joe is just under £195. Lewis comes in at 214 fully hydrated and full of energy this time. Ex-champions have been split on the outcome with Max Baer and Jack Sharkey favouring Walcott, but Jack Dempsey switched to Lewis closer to the fight. Many audiences were aware of the champion's familiar pattern of coming back stronger in rematches. Indeed, adjustments had been made in Lewis's Pompton Lakes camp. Chappie Blackburn's successor in the champion's corner is Manny Seaman, Seaman has lived a life as a boxing coach, beginning his work age just 15 at Bill Grupp's gym in Manhattan. His first claim to fame was working in the corner of the legendary ghetto wizard Benny Leonard for eight years. Other fighters he coached included the world heavyweight champion Primo Carnera and the world light heavyweight champion Billy Conn, both victims of Joe Lewis. He was apprenticed by Blackburn, who sculpted Joe Lewis's style. Seaman was keen to get Lewis used to handling the fleet-footed Walcott. In his preparations, he hired the fastest and most suitable sparring partners he could find. These included the 1947 Chicago Golden Gloves champion, Richard Hagen, known for his swift outboxing and ability to run the 100-yard dash in under 10 seconds. Tiger Roy Taylor was also an extremely fast sparring partner, who provided the added bonus of using a style similar to Walcott's. Lewis has patiently stalked without overtly chasing his opponent. Walcott has stuck to his elusive dance-like movements, bobbing and weaving, tapping his gloves as a distraction and looking to work in the counters. And the audience of 42,677 has booed. So far, Lewis holds off from being baited, but for an instant he moves into the dance and that is all Walcott needs. He lands a crisp straight right and for the third time, Jersey Joe Walcott knocks the great Joe Lewis down. Ben Myers. His movement dynamics were so confusing that he was able to catch Joe Lewis flush and knock him down three times in their two fights with a square right hand to the side of the jaw. This is unheard of for one fighter to pile up that many clean knockdowns of Joe Lewis is 
the single greatest testament to not just Walcott's unorthodox movement, but his timing, power, and ability to land shots on an all-time great. The crowd are on their feet, but the moment is short-lived. Referee Frank Fulham has barely counted one before the champion is back up and the fight resumes at the regular pace. To the renewed frustration and annoyance of the spectators, a stoic Lewis refuses to chase and a dancing Walcott refuses to engage. Then, in round eight, Lewis catches Walcott with a hard left hook, followed by two stiff jabs. Jersey Joe is shook, but it isn't enough to get him in trouble or to break his pace. The dance goes on. Perhaps it was the 10th, or maybe it was the 11th. But sometime later, Frank Fulham is so frustrated by the lack of engagement that he tells both men the immortal words, Hey, one of you get the lead out of your ass and let's have a fight. Walcott resolves to rely on his upper body mobility and to up the pace in round 11. Perhaps he can lure Joe Lewis into a trap for a good counter. Regardless of the increased speed, Lewis believes he sees a man starting to tire and he decides to go after him. He sees this engagement as a Billy Con mistake, the actions of a man becoming overconfident and careless at a time when he is game to finish the bout. He probes with jabs that Walcott easily dodges, receiving right hands for his trouble. Joe Lewis's infamous straight right finds its mark. For a moment, Jersey Joe leaves an opening for the laser-like precision of history's longest reigning champion. The punch smashes into Walcott's face and turns his legs to rubber. On the way it was, Jersey Joe will state that Lewis was the greatest finisher in heavyweight history. Tonight, he's attempting to live up to that reputation as he goes in for the kill. He connects with a right-left combination followed by a right to the body. Walcott hits the ropes and takes a second right to the body as well as a right to the head. Lewis tries to top it off with his vicious left hook, but Jersey Joe ducks in time. Lewis returns to the body, then sends a right to the head, a left hook and an uppercut. Walcott is still standing. He's still fighting too, returning with his own left hook. He fights forward, throwing a right-left-right combination. Walcott could do it. He's faster than the champion and he knows he has the power to knock the man down, even with the increased weight. However, he's in Lewis's territory now. Another straight right sends shockwaves through Jersey Joe's body. The impact turns his head away and the path is clear for Joe Lewis to throw a stream of straight punches that send Walcott down. He lies on his back, blood leaking from the corner of his mouth. Something deep within his concussed mind tells him to move. He makes it to his hands and knees as the crowd now cheers for the bloodshed. Shaking his head to regain composure, he stumbles back down. He can't let it all slip away now. One last effort gets him to his feet, but it's too late. Joe Lewis wins back his adoring public, having defended his title for the 25th time. A standing ovation was given for a man boxing fans thought they'd see fight for the last time. In his dressing room, he will seemingly confirm this neat fairy tale ending to the press with the words, This was for you, Mum. This was my last fight. It will be a short moment of joy, of redemption in his mind, before he has to face the ruins of his personal life and his problems with the IRS. As for Jersey Joe, after his battered form is tended to in his dressing room, an ice pack applied to his swollen face and treatment made to a cut under his left eye, he explains how he saw the fight. Quote, I thought I had him, then the referee kept telling me to come on and fight. He didn't tell Lewis, just me. 
His constant howling got me confused. I changed my style of fighting and this happened. I was fighting the referee instead of Lewis, end quote. When someone asks if he was ever hurt during the fight, Jersey Joe replies, quote, He never hurt me until the 11th round. I thought I had him licked until I made a mistake. I don't know what it was, but he caught me with a powerful punch. I only remember the first punch. They say he hit me some more. I don't remember. End quote. He's 34 now, and twice has he had his chance to face Joe Lewis, a man he was confident he could defeat, to win the prize his life had pointed towards. There has been so much heartache, so many trials, setbacks and cruel twists of fate. Finally, his potential had been realised and he'd made it this far, only to lose it in a most final way. No one would question the results now. He had now become relegated to a curiosity on Lewis's record, doing better overall than Billy Conn, but behind Matt Schmeling, the only man to hand the Brown Bomber a defeat. For a moment, his hometown of Camden, New Jersey, had seen him as the rightful king and given him a hero's welcome home. Now the status quo had been reset. Knowing his Cinderella story and seeing the career decision made by his opponent, a member of the press asked the obvious question, is it time to call it a day? Jersey Joe Walcock knows those who didn't quit on him. He has no intention of giving up just yet. It's always been my ambition he tells the assembled crowd. I still think I can win it. It's been a horrific night. Barodi, a veteran of 46 fights and accepted journeyman, had qualified to face hot prospect Bob the Bombardier Satterfield after winning an easy decision over Albert Johnson. The plan was that the exciting fan favourite Slugger would then dispense with a puffed-up middleweight and anticipation would grow for his match against Ezard Charles. That is not what happened. Satterfield, for all his aggressive and raw power, was cursed with a glass chin. Sam Barodi had laid the critical weakness bare when he shocked everyone by knocking Satterfield down six times before stopping him in the second round. This new upstart had won an opportunity to face the Cincinnati Cobra and excitement had built over on how the night would play out. It turned into a dreadful mismatch. Barodi lasted nine rounds absorbing punishment from his heavier and more lethal opponent without once hitting the canvas. Then in round ten, an onslaught of Charles's punches had dropped him into a sitting position, his left arm draped over the middle rope. As the referee began to count... Barodi seemed to respond in a grotesque act of mimicry, his right hand spasmically flailing the air as if counting himself out. As the referee counted ten, the fighter fell back into a coma. No goodnight ladies played on the stadium pipe organ as a sombre tone took hold of the venue. Barodi was transported to the Cook County Hospital where Ezra Charles and his manager Jake Spinetz followed. They'd stand a night vigil outside the fallen boxer's room. Deaths in boxing, although not common, were quick to grab the headlines and remind everyone the genuine risks fighters faced every time they entered the ring. Gloves, it had been argued, made boxing safer. However, since Andy Bowen died after being felled by Kid Levine and struck his head on the canvassed wooden floor in 1894, arguments as to whether they made a difference or that they actually made the sport more dangerous have become commonplace. 
Last year, Jimmy Doyle died from injuries sustained during his bid for Sugar Ray Robinson's world welterweight title. Closer to home, and only six months prior to his own death in the ring, Sam Barodi's opponent, Newton Smith, had died after Barodi knocked him out in round nine. Ezard Charles would return to boxing that year, although many would question whether he would have the same killer instinct that punctuated his trilogy with Archie Moore. The truth was, Charles had always been a more complex individual than the seemingly cold-blooded menace that glared out of his promotional photograph. However, given the environment around him, it would be easy to understand how he could become such a famous individual. Born in Lawrenceville, Georgia on the 7th of July 1921, young Ezard got his name from the town doctor in lieu of payment. Biographer William Detloff points out early the sort of world the future professional boxer was growing up into and why his family made the move to Cincinnati. Quote, the year Charles was born, there were 63 documented lynchings of blacks in the United States. Over the next 10 years, 41 African Americans were lynched right there in Georgia. End quote. With his father William fleeing the family when Ezard was just five, it was left mainly to his grandmother and great-grandmother to raise him in Cincinnati's infamous West End. The hard knocks came early. Charles was naturally a timid child who only usually spoke when he was spoken to, learning to keep his head down and out of trouble whenever it was possible. The problem was that such luxuries such as staying away from trouble could rarely be afforded to those living in poverty. Ezard Charles quickly became the target for local bullies and was often relying on the swiftness of his feet to escape the regular beatings he had come to expect from his fellow street kids. Then one day, like many future legends of the ring, he was inspired by a visit from a celebrity fighter. Kid Chocolate, real name Elegio Sardinaz Montalvo, was the pride of Cuba, who held the world super featherweight title from 1931 to 1933. A person of colour, he was one of the few fighters of his day who defied the view that the non-white contenders and champions should stay humble. He was flamboyant inside the ring and had a notorious rock star lifestyle outside of it. It was a hot August in 1932 and the kid was scheduled to fight a rematch with Johnny Farr at the Parkway Arena. Despite being a name and already the world's super featherweight champion, the promoters knew they need to build up the gate and sent Chocolate out to the streets to meet the masses. He was driven down the West End in a huge car with the top down. Chocolate sat up high, waving to the crowds that lined the street to greet him. As luck would have it, the car turned down the block where Charles's family lived and stopped outside a candy store. The local children swarmed on the car and its famous occupant. A bedazzled Ezard watched as Kid Chocolate stepped onto the pavement dressed in an immaculate tailored suit that shone in the summer sun. That moment installed a purpose and ignited a fiery courage in the young boy. He made a decision. Quote, I'm going to be a fighter and have clothes like that. End quote. Turning to face his persecutors, Ezard Charles began his ascent by winning the backyard boxing matches children regularly fought from the age of eight. He came under the mentorship of Bert Williams, who helped develop his style, where his fast hands would be utilised with an intelligent defence as Charles became a vicious counterpuncher and, most specifically, a dangerous interceptor. Ben Myers
Ezard Charles is the master of interception. An odd angle shifting short power punches that capitalized on an ability to hit from the pocket, which would later be emulated by all-time great Evander Holyfield. Charles wasn't an intercepting puncher in the vein of someone like Floyd Mayweather, who got short, sharp touches that lacked power in the pocket, but nonetheless counted as counterpunching and intercepting. He was a guy who intercepted his opponents with counter-punching power punches. Basically, he mastered the car crash counter. Remember in physics class in high school when they used that illustration of two cars traveling towards each other at 60 miles an hour and how much it magnified the power of the crash? Charles would do that with his fist and his opponent's face. His short angle change footwork allowed him to change angles inside the pocket, shifting his body to the inside or outside of his opponent's punch and throwing his own power punch counter, which would crash into his opponent's face, which was also moving because they were putting body English on their shot to try to hit him. By the time he graduated from Woodward High School, he had a fearsome reputation as an amateur boxer, initially fighting in the featherweight division. He would finish this part of his career with a record of 42 wins and no losses, including the Diamond Belt Middleweight Championship in 1938 and the Chicago Golden Gloves, an AAU Middleweight Championship in 1939. Turning professional in 1940 with a fourth-round knockout over Melody Jackson, he came home with a modest $5. Charles won all 17 of his first professional fights before he predictably lost to Ring Magazine's number two-ranked middleweight, Ken Overlin, on the 9th of June 1941. Overlin had only just lost the world middleweight title in his previous bout, and Charles's handlers knew the risk. It was unlikely their man would win, but he could gain a huge amount of experience, and Overlin was not known for his knockout power, so wouldn't cause him any damage. That was exactly what happened. It was a 10-round decision where experience overcame all the usual follies of youth, as Overlin simply let Charles wear himself out and learn a valuable boxing lesson. Undeterred from his goals, Ezra Charles stopped Al Gilbert in round five, barely over a month after his loss to Overlin. Pat Mangini then fell in just round one of Charles's next fight before the Cincinnati Cobra claimed his first significant scalp before the year was over. Teddy Yarose was another famous world middleweight title holder who would reign from 1934 to 1935. He was clearly on a far steeper decline than Overlin and his 10-round unanimous decision loss would prove to be his penultimate fight. However, Charles's next victory demonstrated he had rapidly improved and that he had now outgrown the middleweights. His first opponent at 175 pounds was Anton Christoforedis. Christoforedis had won the National Boxing Association's World Light Heavyweight Championship just under a year prior to facing Ezard Charles, becoming the first Greek to receive a world boxing title. He had since lost the title in a unanimous decision to Gus Lesnovich. On the 12th of January 1942, Ezra Charles battered Christoforidis into a third round stoppage. 
He was then matched again with Ovalin, drawing this time, after a points victory over middleweight Billy Pryor, Ezard Charles lost for the second time in his career to the Cuban boxer puncher Kid Tunero. Tunero may have been in the last decade of his career, but he was noted for having an extremely high ring IQ. He would retire with an impressive record of 96 wins and was notoriously ducked by many white fighters who drew the colour line. There was no shame in losing to Kid Tunero. Even if there was, Charles more than made up for it in his next two bouts. By this time, the Cincinnati Cobra had severed ties with his old coach and manager, Burt Williams, a collective that included an accountant, a restaurant proprietor, and Max Elkus, the owner of a clothing store, now managed him. Charles was so grateful to Elkus and his family that even after his success as a pro, he would work behind their counter during the busy holiday season. However, it was Pittsburgh's Jake Mintz who became the promotional front of the outfit. Mintz had fought in the 1920s under the name Jack O'Boyle before he made a name for himself as a matchmaker. He got Charles about with his hometown's current hot property, Charlie Burley, on the 25th of May, 1942. Burley was an original and arguably the greatest member of the 1940s feared Murderer's Row. This was a banner applied to the group of mainly African-American middleweight contenders in the USA that never received a shot at the world title due to rival managers and trainers fearing their ability. Sports writer and novelist Bob Schulberg applied the moniker to them. He had appropriated it from the nickname given to the New York Yankees in the 1920s and it proved to be more apt. Another sports writer, Jim Murray, would reminisce that they were, quote, the most exclusive men's club the ring has ever known. They were so good and so feared that they had to have their own tournament, end quote. Originally, Schulberg named just five boxers that were conspicuous by their incredible in-ring performance versus the way they were avoided. These men, in order of their professional debuts, were Eddie Brooker, Charlie Burley, Jack Chase, Bert Littell and Lloyd Marshall. Holman Williams, Herbert Coco Kid Lewis Hardwick and Aaron Wade were later added. They fought each other a total of 62 times, almost always pleasing audiences with exceptional displays of skill and courage. Burley won 83 of his total 98 contests, drawing twice and only ever losing to decisions. His conquests included the respected welterweight Jimmy Leto, who would finish his career with 126 wins, 1940s world welterweight champion Fritzy Zivic, 1941s world middleweight champion Billy Seuss and Archie Moore, who, at just under 10 years, holds the longest reign as light heavyweight champion in the history of boxing. Moore, who not only fought Ezra Charles but also Rocky Marciano, Floyd Patterson and Muhammad Ali, will declare that Burley was the greatest fighter of all time. Even the boxer that is most regularly considered to be the greatest pound-for-pound fighter of all time, Sugar Ray Robinson, avoided Charlie Burley. For his efforts, he would be the penultimate holder of both the world-coloured welterweight title and the world-coloured middleweight title, as well as the holder of California State's middleweight title. Despite Ezard Charles having some genuinely impressive wins over the likes of Yaros and Christophoridis, the smart money seemed to be with Charlie Burley. This was Charles's 27th bout, whereas Burley, who had fought 60 at this point, was on a 20-match winning streak. 
As it turned out, the Cincinnati Cobra won a decisive 10-round unanimous decision over Burley in the middleweight's hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Burley was known for a vicious jab that put opponents in defensive positions, but this seemed to play perfectly into Charles' counter-punching hands. The result was a shocking upset for Burley's team, who had seen a win over Charles as a stepping stone to their long overdue shot at the world title. There was no doubting Charles's win. The fight had been an action-packed affair with a young upstart almost knocking out Charlie Burley in round four. Demonstrating the raw resolve and courage that underlined his greatness, Burley came back in the next round, but his opponent had plenty left in the tank. Losing this bout was a disaster, and a rematch was hastily arranged just over a month later on the 29th of June in Millvale, also in Pennsylvania. Not far for Burley's Pittsburgh fans to travel and see their local hero's hopeful redemption. Just six days before the rematch, Charlie Burley took on fellow murderers row fighter Holman Williams. He'd fought Williams twice before, both men winning one apiece, so this was no glorified sparring match. As if to send a message, the win occurred in Charles' hometown of Cincinnati. However, rather than providing Burley and his team with an opportunity to avenge the upset and move upwards, it was Ezard Charles who was able to restate his claim to greatness. The rematch wasn't the drama-laden contest that Pittsburgh had witnessed. Millvale audiences watched Burley take on a far cagier strategy. Wary of the power his larger opponent had displayed in their previous encounter, he adopted the boring outboxer strategy of circling away and tying up his opponent. These frequent clinches to stem the power shots ended up becoming something of a workout for referee Red Robinson, who seemed to be constantly separating the two men. Ezard Charles maintained the same focused aggression that was becoming his hallmark, aiming for the body whenever possible. However, the Cobra's strength was in his ability to intercept and Burley's lack of engagement meant that this did not happen very often. Nevertheless, to the quiet and resigned disappointment of Burley's home state fans, Charles earned his inevitable points victory by bringing the fight to his opponent for at least 8 of the 10 rounds. Whilst Burley would languish in murderer's row for the rest of his career with only the Californian state middleweight belt to console him in 1944, Ezard Charles was now a recognised force. The Cincinnati Cobra won all of his remaining matches of 1942. These victories included a fifth round knockout over Jose Bazora, a sixth round knockout over Mose Brown, and, as if to re-establish his credentials in the light heavyweight division, two unanimous decisions over future world light heavyweight champion Joey Maxim. 1943 didn't start so auspiciously when he lost to the Cleveland Spider-Man, Jimmy Bivens, in the semi-finals for the interim or duration World Light Heavyweight title, whilst the current title holder, Gus Lesnovich, was in service during World War II. Nevertheless, the fight had been an exciting to-and-fro affair that proved Charles would give and take it above his natural middleweight division. Bivens, who already held the interim or duration world heavyweight title, did not pick up the pace until round three. The first two rounds were strong openers for Charles, who knocked down Bivens for a no count in round two. However, Cleveland's famous outboxer with his 76-inch reach took charge in round three, sending Charles down for a nine count with a hard left hook just ahead of the bell. Charles tried to step on the gas in round four, meeting Bivens for a ferocious battle in the trenches. However, the plan did not work out. Not only was Bivens in his prime, ranking by the National Boxing Association as the number one contender for their world light heavyweight title at this point, but also at £174, he outweighed Charles by £9. 
His two stiff rights sent the Cobra down for another nine count before the round finished. Matters weren't looking good in round five as Bivens went in for the kill, pursuing his quarry and landing a solid left that sent Charles down for his third nine count. Drawing upon his outboxing skills, Charles tightened up his defence to weather the storm and remained standing for the next two rounds. He decided to put his head above the parapet in round eight and snatch some body shots, but Bivens wasn't put on the back foot for long. A late rally in the round sent Charles down for a fourth time, this time for a count of two. Bivens took the ten-round decision and would then win a unanimous decision over Anton Christophoridis for the interim duration World Light Heavyweight Championship. If the Bivens bout had been a respectable loss to a much heavier opponent, Ezra Charles' next fight was an ill-advised matching that could have ruined his career. Lloyd Marshall, another member of Murderer's Row, stopped him in the eighth round of their contest after knocking him down a total of eight times, twice in round one, once in round three, once in round five, twice in round seven and twice in round eight, where the referee decided to stop the match. Making matters worse, the press reports emphasised that Charles outweighed Marshall by three pounds. Upon closer inspection, the match had not been determined by Marshall's prowess in the ring, but rather a hip injury Charles had suffered from the pounding Bivens had dished out in the previous fight. He needed a break from the ring. That came in the form of his enlisting in the military for the war effort. Ezra Charles began basic training in Texas, where it was reported he refused preferential treatment. However, his fellow soldiers were able to convince him to spar with Joe Lewis, who was touring the bases to conduct exhibition bouts. Despite originally being impressed by the outward flamboyance of Kid Chocolate, who had exhibited the material rewards of successful boxing, once Charles began boxing in earnest, it was Joe Lewis who he looked to as his model hero. Sparring contests between the fan and his idol was not a recorded exhibition, and the understanding was that both fighters would hold back. Nevertheless, round one went a little too well for Ezard Charles and he couldn't resist bouncing a hook off Lewis's head in the second round to entertain his new army buddies. Lewis wasn't anyone's fool and the rest of the match saw him lay enough into Ezard Charles to establish the hierarchy. Charles was promoted to corporal and his 2nd Cavalry Division were deployed to Iran, North Africa. Whilst there, he was caught driving outside of the limits whilst his unit was in area confinement. This little stint had him demoted back down to private. Humiliated and humbled by the incident, Charles took stock of his life. Meanwhile, the same army friend who'd put him forward to spar with Joe Lewis suggested to the CO that Ezard Charles was perfect to represent the army in tournaments across Europe. This saw an end to Ezard Charles driving supply trucks and he joined the 5th Army Boxing Team in the Special Services Unit. When the Allied forces liberated Rome in June 1944, Ezra Charles spent the remainder of the war fighting in the inter-Allied boxing tournaments and began a different type of campaign in his attempts to win over the daughter of a local shipbuilder. He won every single bout he entered, concluding with the Mediterranean Inter-Allied Light Heavyweight Championship. After being discharged, Ezra Charles went straight back into training and on a warpath that started in his home of Cincinnati in February 1946. His first victim, Al Sheridan, did not last the second round of their contest at the Music Hall Arena. Just over a month later, he dominated Tommy Hubert in a 10-round unanimous decision. 
Mintz then matched him over in Pittsburgh, where he knocked out Billy Duncan in round four and George Parks in round six. He then returned to the Music Hall Arena and settled any arguments Tommy Hubert might have had with their previous decision by disposing of him in round four. The Cincinnati Cobra then claimed his first victory over Archie Moore. Charles was revealing his style to be more of a tactician than that of a strategist. He felt out his opponents and adapted to their style, developing appropriate counters with iron discipline. Like Joe Lewis, he was a minimalist who would not waste an action. He used specific feints and a probing jab that attacked at all levels. This was all behind his most celebrated skill, the ability to set up his kill shot. Once he had worked out the best range for his opponent, how they attacked and how they countered, he would manipulate them into the best positions for him to take advantage. After Shelton Bell was knocked out in round five, it was time to settle some old scores. Lloyd Marshall was first. Charles knocked him out in round six of their rematch. After a unanimous decision over Oakland Billy Smith, Charles took on Jimmy Bivens again. Charles was up to 175 pounds, but Bivens outweighed him even more this time at 186 pounds. The Cleveland Spider-Man was the 8-5 favourite, but he hadn't fought for five months, possibly waiting for a shot at Joe Lewis. The match was another crowd-pleasing fight. This time, Charles had the measure of his man, timing his interceptions throughout the encounter, even after Bivens knocked him down in round three with a short right to the jaw. Taking the nine count, many on Charles's side might have feared that this would be a repeat of the first bout. However, Charles was fast to recover and dominated all but two of the remaining rounds. Even when Bivens dug in for the 10th round, Charles counterpunched the larger man's powerful right uppercuts to win a unanimous verdict. Ezard Charles had left the army to win 10 matches in a row throughout 1946. Then on the 11th of January, Charles pulled a tendon on his right hand that threatened to slow down his 47th schedule. This didn't stop him knocking out two of the previous year's rivals. Oakland Billy Smith went for a 12-rounder on Charles, perhaps believing he could put on a better performance with the extra time. This time, he didn't make it out of round five. Weighing only £170 for his match-up against the £184 Jimmy Bivens in their rubber match, Charles was on prime form. He shocked the heavier man with powerful rights in the first two rounds. As was the pattern now, Bivens regrouped in round three, but this time Charles wasn't going down. Round four saw the Cincinnati Cobra land a vicious left-hook-right cross combination that put the Spider-Man down for a full ten count at 1 minute 14 seconds. With this decisive victory, the promoters were excited to get Ezard Charles to Madison Square Garden. In fact, there was now talk about the Cobra taking on Joe Lewis. That wasn't the news Charles had wanted to hear at this stage. He was a middleweight who had proven himself as a legitimate contender for the light heavyweight crown. It would appear he'd outdone himself, and the powers that be were set to overmatch him. Charles wanted Gus Lesnovich's light heavyweight title. He didn't fancy becoming yet another victim of the Brown Bomber. Nevertheless, Sol Strauss, now representing Mike Jacobs' interest in 20th Century Sporting Club, was convinced by Mintz to arrange a bout between the £175 Charles and the £194 Elmer Violent Ray at Madison Square Garden. This was at the time when Joe Baxey, now in the running, and Jimmy Bivens was now out of the heavyweight contender race since he had lost to Charles. In the meantime, Ezard got busy taking on the resilient Irv Sarlin. This was overall an easy unanimous decision win for Charles, who absorbed every swarming attack by the man who had never been knocked down, only to dominate the rest of the fight. 
One contemporary report said that Sarlin's face after the fight looked like it had been, quote, given the once-over lightly treatment with a buzzsaw, end quote. The Cincinnati Cobra then won his majority decision over Archie Moore and a fifth-round knockout over the powerful hitter, first-round Fitzy Fitzpatrick. Gus Lesnovich had been at ringside to watch Charles' second match with Moore on the 5th of May 1947. After the fight, he told the press he would fight either man whoever his manager picked for him. When reporters said that promoters Sam and Benny Becker had put a lot of money on the table for him to fight Ezard Charles, Lesnovich offered no comment. The reigning world light heavyweight champion had last defended his title against Billy Blackjack Fox on the 28th of February that year. Fox was a mob-manufactured stooge who was the supposed bookie's favourite due to his highly dubious unbeaten record that consisted of 37 suspicious knockouts. Managed by the notorious Frankie Blinky Palermo of the Philadelphia crime family, Fox was easy prey for Lesnovich. In fact, after easily dominating the first two rounds, Lesnovich had become so complacent that Fox almost legitimately stole the night and almost flattened the champion. He took the fourth round too, as Lesnovich recovered from the carelessness he'd shown in the previous round. However, once back on track in round six, the pride of Cliffside had got to business on putting Fox away. The report of the time says that it was a textbook destruction of the challenger, with the champion moving to his opponent's left and away from the powerful hand, as he then proceeded to tear into Fox's body, snap his chin back with regular jabbing and drop in heavy rights. Fox went down for an eight count in round 10, but he clearly had not recovered and fell into a clinch with Lesnovich, which was enough for the referee to call a halt. Back in the heavyweight division, Joe Lewis, at this point far more in control of his bookings than he had been before Uncle Mike Jacobs had been taken ill with a stroke, announced that he would meet the winner of the Elmer Ray Ezard Charles bout, so long as the contest had a decisive victor. This was far from being the case. The fight on the 25th of July 1947 ended in a very close split decision going to Elmer Ray. The Associated Press reported, quote, Ray barely managed to get a nod of the two officials after putting up a hot rush down the stretch, particularly in the 7th and 9th when he forced Ezard to grab and hold, end quote. Elmer Ray did not get his title shot on the 14th of November. It wasn't that his win hadn't been as dominant as Lewis had demanded, but that three months prior to beating Ezard Charles, he'd lost his own majority decision to Jersey Joe Walcott. Meanwhile, Ezard Charles got back on the light heavyweight path. Staying in New York, he won a unanimous decision over Joe Matisse before he took on Lloyd Marshall again in their rubber match. This time, Marshall was knocked out in round two. Al Smith was stopped in round four. Clarence Jones fell in round one. Teddy Randolph was defeated on a unanimous decision. And Fitzy Fitzpatrick was knocked out in round four of his rematch with Charles. Blinky Palermo matched Billy Fox against six other fighters. They were all stoppage wins again. The last was particularly infamous when he went in as an underdog against Jake Raging Bull Lamotta. Lamotta was famed for his iron chin and had not been once knocked down, let alone stopped in his career. However, he had been struggling to get a shot at the world middleweight title. The mob took $20,000 off him and he also agreed to take a dive against Fox in round four. Based on this highly suspicious win, it was argued that Fox had earned a rematch with Lesnovich, who had only been fighting non-title bouts since the last two met. Lesnovich's manager, Joe Vella, 
is only too happy to ignore any talk of a Moore or Charles matchup in favour of this easy bout, and the rematch was booked for the 5th of March. Cleveland promoter Larry Atkins was so outraged by Vela's antics that he complained to the National Boxing Association, asking them to block the contest. He stated that unless Gus Lesnovich agreed to face the winner of the Moore Charles third bout in January, he would have the Cleveland Boxing Commission recognise this January match as the World Light Heavyweight Championship. When this fell on deaf ears and the NBA rejected everything Atkins had said, the promoter took out an advert in Cleveland Plain Dealer. Quote, I am certain that the winner of this bout will be recognised internationally as the only champion in due time because I'm positive that Gus Lesnovich will never fight either Charles or Moore. Events will prove my contention. End quote. Indeed, Ezra Charles's eighth round knockout of Archie Moore did not award him a title shot. However, Charles and Lesnovich's paths will cross in the squared ring. It will just be under different conditions. Gus Lesnovich put his title on the line for his rematch with Billy Fox on the 5th of March and as predicted the event was an easy payday for the champion. He didn't mess about this time and knocked Fox out in round one. After a loss to Willis Applegate, Fox would fade into obscurity as the mob dropped him and he lost more fights than he won during the remainder of his career. As for Lesnovich, he decided to cross the Atlantic again to give a rematch to another one of his former victims. Britain's Freddie Mills on the 26th of July. Lesnovich had stopped Mills in his first defence of the light heavyweight title after World War II. Fearless Freddie was a courageous slugger from Bournemouth who, for a short time, cut his teeth on my grandparents' boxing booze on the circus and on the fair. Critics have argued that Mills spent too much of his time fighting heavyweights. He sustained a lot of cumulative damage over the years and was nearing the end of his career when he took on Lesnovich for the light heavyweight first post-world title fight. It was Mills' first fight in 15 months as he had only just come out of the RAF. The champion had fought two non-title fights since being discharged from the Coast Guard, a first-round knockout over Joe Cowart and a disastrous fifth-round loss to Lee Omar. He needed an easy title defence to re-establish his reputation and the -the over-the-hill, ring-rusty Mills seemed like the perfect candidate. Lesnovich was a counter-punching outboxer that looked tailor-made to defeat the battle-worn slugger who would famously rush at his opponents. Matters appeared to be going to plan for the champion when Mills went down three times in round two. However, he survived and in round five he launched his comeback, taking the fight to Lesnovich. With his home crowd behind him, Mills kept up the momentum all the way into the ninth where he dug in hard rights to the body and lefts to the face that closed the champion's left eye. Lesnovich's counterpunches had little effect and it looked like an upset was on the way. However, as Fearless Freddy tried to continue the momentum in round 10, Lesnovich pulled out one of his explosions. Mills hit the deck for a nine count and this time he wouldn't be able to withstand the punishment. The referee stepped in as he went down for a second time in the same round and the fight was waved off. Since this match, Mills suffered regular painful headaches that did not subside. He acquired a facial twitch, would close his eyes as if experiencing immense pain, and would regularly push his fingers into the corners of his eyes. An x-ray revealed that he had two dislodged vertebrae. This information was kept from the press and Mills fought on. He lost his next match to Bruce Woodcock on points less than a month after his failed title shot. Two months later, he knocked out John Nissan in the first round but it was a brief respite. 
Another heavyweight, the then favoured contender Joe Baxi, exposed further injuries Mills had sustained, his chronic eye problems. Freddie took a cut above his right eye in round two and took another above his left in round three. Almost blind, he was battered into submission by the end of round six. He won seven of his next eight fights, his single defeat going to Lloyd Marshall, who knocked him out in round five. He had picked up and defended the European Union light heavyweight title, but even without the inside information on his headaches, Mills seemed like a light choice for Lesnovich. Besides, Gus was a more technical fighter who had the measure of him now. 1947 had been good to Lesnovich. He'd won the Ring Magazine's Fighter of the Year award. However, matters went downhill fast after his one-round knockout of Billy Fox in 48. Whereas the victory in the first match might have impressed everyone because of Fox's incredible-looking 37 all-knockout win record, it all looked different now after Lamotta had taken the most obvious of dives. Even Lesnovich's three victories between the two title bouts with Fox looked like easy choices, and there were indications that he was on a steep decline. His first opponent had been the brief former light heavyweight champion of 1939, Emilio Bettina, who was very much a journeyman at this stage, losing to most notable fighters in recent years. Having said that, Lesnovich did earn some extra points for knocking down Bettina three times in the first round, the third and final time breaking the Madison Square Garden record for the fastest knockout. His next two fights were against Tammy Moriello, a man he had already twice defeated. Moriello had started his career nosedive a year previously when he had been the 55-1 to underdog put down by Joe Lewis in round one. Lesnovich's most recent defeats of Tammy were a close decision and a round seven knockout. Ezard Charles says he wants to give up boxing. Few see it as a shallow claim. He was never too prideful to work in a shop between early professional boxing bouts, and he even looked at his wartime service as an opportunity to move away from the sport. He had a trade as a mechanic, and the death of Sam Barodi appears to be another sign. It will take Barodi's family, more specifically the fighter's father, to convince Charles to go on fighting. There have been obstacles before in Charles's life. When he first started boxing as a teenager, many gyms had turned him down before Burt Williams had seen his potential. After standing up to a beating from a much larger and experienced Sam Rutledge, Williams had kept him on. Before he was the Cincinnati Cobra, Ezard Charles had been known as Snooks due to him being regularly matched with much larger fighters in his amateur days. The Brody fight might have been a tragic reversal of that image, but now history looks set to repeat itself. As if to exercise a ghost, the next bout takes place at the Chicago Stadium where Charles fought Barodi. Charles takes on the last man to beat him, Elmer Ray, who outweighs him by 17 pounds and is ranked number two in the world heavyweight rankings. However, as the bout reaches the ninth round, it looks like Ray's best days are gone. Ezard, by contrast, is slick and fast. He lands a left hook, and at the 2 minute 43 second mark of the ninth round, Elmer Ray is counted out of the match and is out of the running for boxing's most lucrative prize. Ignoring this fact, a hopeful Charles calls out in vain for a title match against Gus Lesnovich. Jake Mintz tells anyone who will listen that Charles will fight the current light heavyweight title holder any place, any time, and under any terms. Likewise, Sol Strauss 
of the 20th Century Sporting Club wants to give Ezra Charles his opportunity to match the man and to use that match to kickstart a tournament to decide Joe Lewis's successor. However, Lesnovich's management don't want to play this game. Joe Vella has already refused the $50,000 put forward by the Elkers family and outright stated they thought Charles would knock out their man. If Lesnovich was likely to lose the title, they wanted a better payday. Therefore, despite considered by many to be the greatest light heavyweight champion that ever lived, Ezard Charles will never get a shot at this division's world title. Instead, he's matched with another heavyweight, Irv Sarlin, just 13 days later and claims a unanimous decision. Any suspicions that Gus Lesnovich has been resting on his laurels and avoiding difficult fighters like Charles and Moore in favour of an easy rematch with Fox seem justified after the champion takes on Freddie Mills for the second time in their career. Lesnovich struggles to make the weight, notably removing a heavy signet ring before stepping on the scales. He looks pale and drawn, coming in at only four ounces under the weight limit. By contrast, Mills looks relaxed and fit as he registers at four and a half pounds within the weight limit. This will be the last great moment of glory for the plucky Bournemouth bombshell. Mills has poured everything into training for this fight. Even with the muzzy feelings in his head and the confirmed vertebrae displacement, Freddie is determined he's not going to lose this time. In addition to training and eating well in his camp, working hard with Johnny Williams and Lloyd Barnett, his sparring partners, Mills brought in a projector to re-watch his losses to Lesnovich and Bruce Woodcock. He closely examines them for weaknesses. Even Freddie's nerves on the night of the fight are allayed when he receives an impromptu visit from Sid Field in his dressing room. Field is a comedy pioneer that is hugely celebrated in his time, but due to the scarcity of recorded material, will be forgotten by subsequent generations. British comic legends Eric Morecambe, Tommy Cooper, Tony Hancock, Eric Sykes and Frankie Howard will describe him as a personal favourite. Even over in the USA, the great Bob Hope calls him, quote, probably the best comedian of them all, end quote. Whilst back in his home country, Laurence Olivier, a man synonymous with the art of acting, will admit to borrowing from Field, quote unquote, freely and unashamedly. Three years from now, Field will die from a heart attack, aged only 45. However, tonight, he has some new, raw material and wants to ask Freddie Mills if he can try these new gags out on him. It's just the tonic Freddie needs to loosen him up and relieve the psychological burden he feels. He walks to the ring without a care in the world. Nevertheless, once the challenger is in his corner, it is time to get down to business. The strategy had been clear from the first day of training camp. He's to be wary of Lesnovich's straight right. Freddie will even later say it was the hardest of its kind in the light heavyweight division. The punch had been responsible for the damage caused in round two of their previous encounter. However, Freddie's camp reasoned that Lesnovich would be expecting the challenger to be cautious of his right hand in the opening rounds and therefore an early rush might take the champion by surprise. If Eugene Fordworth's maxim that quote-unquote assumption is the mother of all mistakes is considered a fair warning, then assuming another's assumption might be classed as outright gambling. Nevertheless, Team Mills decides to go for broke in round one and Freddie charges out of his corner. As Lesnovich sets up his big right with a well-placed left, Freddie fires off a powerful counterpunch that staggers the champion and splits his right eyebrow. Having off-balanced his opponent, Mills follows his punch with a left hook. Lesnovich clinches only to be forced backwards with hard body shots. Freddie takes the first round. The next two are even, but Lesnovich comes back in round four in an attempt to finish the fight, hoping that the challenger has overspent, but now Mills hunkers down on his defence. Round five, 
and the champion's drawing tactics almost lure Freddy into a counter-punching trap, but fearless Freddy pulls back, showing uncharacteristic caution. Indeed, his refusal to play Lesnovich's game leads the two fighters to cancel each other out for the next couple of rounds, prompting slow claps from the audience and the referee telling them to both re-engage. Mills does enough to keep the action going whilst watching out for Lesnovich's right. Then in round 10, Mills builds up momentum and has Lesnovich against the ropes. He catches him with a solid left hook to the jaw. The champion tries to push inside the challenger's gloves, but Mills meets him with a right cross-left hook combination. As with the first round, the notorious counterpuncher has been counterpunched and Lesnovich hits the canvas. He almost gets up at three but decides to wait a little longer when he sees the intent in the challenger's stance. Sure enough, Mills sees the grogginess in his opponent's eyes and piles into him, landing a left hook for another knockdown. Lesnovich beats the count again and survives the rest of the round on his feet. Mills will later say that he missed his opportunity in round 11 when he could have knocked the champion out and then credits Lesnovich's second comeback in rounds 12, 13 and 14. In round 15, Freddy decides he will have to risk taking the right hand and living up to his courageous reputation, presses the fight toe-to-toe. He doesn't put the champion down again, but it doesn't matter. Three fights and under a year and a half from his eventual retirement from the ring, Freddie Mills wins the light heavyweight championship. Such moments of glory are little solace for Ezra Charles. Ted Broadrib announces that he is not interested in matching Freddie Mills with Charles. Whether he likes it or not, Snooks will be fighting with the bigger boys. As for the new light heavyweight champion, he wants to give Lesnovich a rubber match, but in order to get a decent enough payday, such a bout will need to be staged in a New York outside venue, and it's now too late in the year. Instead, they opt to honour a non-title matchup with Johnny Ralph during the latter days of a South African spring in November. The bout has been postponed since May. Mills will give Ralph his first career knockout in round A to their fight at Wembley Stadium, Johannesburg. Although no official announcement has been made since his 25th of June knockout of Jersey Joe Walcott, Joe Lewis seems intent on retiring. He will schedule an exhibition tour that will begin on the 30th of September that year. However, before then, other matters seem to signal a change in direction for history's longest reigning world heavyweight champion. He may have won back the respect of the public with the Walcott rematch, but his marriage with Marva is now at an end. He puts time into launching Joe Lewis Youth Clubs with Truman Gibson and the Superior Life Insurance Company, where underprivileged and especially African-American children will get involved in track meets, outdoor boxing and going on picnics. Truman Gibson has also worked with Lewis to set up the Chicago School of Automotive Trades, which will end up benefiting his stepbrother, Pat Brooks, who will be a graduate. Lewis will even get time to get back on the golf course with his fellow boxing legend friend and wartime colleague Sugar Ray Robinson at a tournament the world welterweight and future world middleweight champion has organised. This appointment gets Lewis an invitation to the United Golf Association in Indianapolis. 
During a time when the Professional Golf Association still excludes black players, the UGA gives African Americans an opportunity to play at a higher level. Meanwhile, the heavyweight division is in disarray. The three biggest promotional entities behind the scenes are now locked in a bitter dispute regarding the future of the most prestigious title in boxing. All agree they need some form of elimination tournament to decide Lewis's successor, an individual each promotion wants to control. The London promoter Jack Solomon proposes an outright heavyweight competition of American fighters. Many names are being discussed. El Murray is mentioned, although he will never be given serious consideration since his loss to Charles. There's Lee Savold. Old favourite Joe Baxi is back after his year layoff and in a high contender position again. Similarly, after his technical knockout loss to Baxi, English boxer Bruce Woodcock is back after his year out in an attempt to punch above his weight again. Current light heavyweight champion Freddie Mills is also under consideration, along with former champions Gus Lesnovich and even Billy Conn. Sol Strauss and 20th Century Sporting Club still like a match between Gus Lesnovich and Ezard Charles, but this time as a starting point for the elimination bouts. It has the support of the Seven Angels, the third promotion vying for control. This company gets its name because of the seven millionaires who run it. There's also Jersey Joe Walcott, the last man to fight for the world title and still ranked number one contender by Ring Magazine. Lesnovich argues that his wins over Molino Bettina and Tammy Moriello qualify his place to face Walcott for the vacant title and that they should both bypass the tournament. The Seven Angels pip 20th Century Sporting Club to the post and begin promoting this match-up in August for a fight to be scheduled for the 21st of September. With Mike Jacobs out of the picture, it appears that Strauss is no longer wielding the power the company once had and the other promotions are set to break their monopoly on the heavyweight crown. The winner of the Walcott-Lesnovich bout won't have the title but will face off against the victor of another Ezard Charles-Jimmy Vivens match. Jersey Joe also makes a public announcement around this time that Joe Webster will now be standing down as his manager. Walcott tells the sports press, quote, I'll handle my own business arrangements from now on. Webster and I will remain the best of friends. There has been no dispute between us, but he's too tied up in this restaurant business. End quote. On the 13th of September, Ezard Charles wins his fourth fight with Jimmy Bivens by unanimous decision. Bivens, now on the losing end of three of their matches, tells the press he won the last three rounds. Charles is just disappointed he didn't get the knockout he was clearly seeking. He is humble when he tells the press that despite feeling strong as a heavyweight, tonight he lacked fire and pep. These elements don't seem absent on the 7th of November when he knocks out Walter Hafer in round 7. He then stops the heavyweight golden boy Joe Baxi in round 11 of their clash on the 10th of December. Back on the 17th of September, matters are not so straightforward for Jersey Joe Walcott. Lesnovich's management announced that he won't be able to fight his fellow New Jersey resident on the 21st of September due to the former light heavyweight champion slipping on the steps of his local post office and injuring himself. Some reports claim a broken toe, others a broken ankle. Lesnovich won't be able to fight again for at least a month. After his loss to Ezard Charles, Jimmy Bivens is matched with old Jersey Joe rival Joey the Machine Gun Maxim on the 7th of December at the Cleveland Arena. In late November, Felix Bikikio meets with Larry Atkins to arrange a bout between Jersey Joe and the victor of this bout. 
the deal doesn't work out. Instead, Ezra Charles is matched with Joey Maxim after he scores a split decision over Bivens on the 28th of February 1949. Joe Lewis has been touring the USA fighting exhibition bouts. He had fought around 20 matches from the 30th of September until Christmas. These included another decision over Billy Conn, who had become a good friend by this time. On the 10th of January, he restarted the national tour. On the 25th of January, he fought Elmer Ray in a six-rounder in Miami, Florida. He would fight Ray a total of three times, twice in Florida and once in Texas. Each one revealed that if Lewis was ripe for retirement, then Ray was now long past his sell-by date. The six-round affairs end with Lewis easily outpointing Kid Violent the first time, retiring him in his corner in round three of the second match, and straight knocking him out in the last one. Whilst in Miami, Lewis visits the ailing promoter, Uncle Mike Jacobs. Jacobs' condition seems to reflect a changing of the guard to the Brown Bomber. Lewis knows that if he makes his decision to retire, Jacobs is not going to step back into 20th Century Sporting Club. Neither Lewis nor the company have the power they once possessed. Moving his eyes away from New York, where the three promotions scramble over Madison Square Garden and the Yankee Stadium to stage their heavyweight championship, Joe Lewis looks to Chicago. He thinks perhaps he could run his own promotion. He knows James D. Norris, who bought the hockey teams, the Detroit Red Wings in 1932 and the Chicago Blackhawks in 1946. Lewis calls Norris between exhibition bouts and tells the businessman he can get the heavyweight championship currently being scrapped over. Finishing his tour with a three-rounder against Edgar Edward in Kingston, Jamaica, Joe Lewis heads to the Windy City. On the 1st of March, Joe Lewis calls a press conference. He officially announces his retirement as the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world and that he will now be turning his attention to the promotion of fights. Lewis then attends a meeting with Norris and another Chicago businessman, Arthur M. Wirtz, to form the International Boxing Club. In 1905, James J. Jeffries retired from boxing while still holding the World Heavyweight Championship. In doing so, he felt it was his duty, privilege and right to nominate the two men he believed to be the most credible candidates for the now vacant title, Marvin Hart and Jack Root. With this president in place, Joe Lewis makes his own nominations. Circumventing New York, Lewis takes this up with Abe Green of the National Boxing Association. The NBA had been formed in 1921 to connect to counter the monopoly over boxing held by the New York State Athletic Commission. Green is convinced that Lewis has selected the right men to fight for the vacated title. Each will receive 25% of the gate. Officially, every state but New York will recognise this bout to be organised by the International Boxing Club. However, it won't be recognised by Ring Magazine, the British Board of Boxing Control or the European Boxing Union. Each wanted to stage elimination tournaments. Nevertheless, after 12 years, the world will see a new world heavyweight champion. On the 22nd of June, at Comiskey Park, Chicago, Ezard Charles will get his first shot at a world title when he faces a man who is on his third try, Jersey Joe Walcott. My thanks to Ben Myers for his inserts in this episode. Be sure to check out the notes for this episode to see links to Ben Meyer's relevant material. Next episode, Jersey Joe Walcott 
begins one of boxing's greatest rivalries and Joe Lewis is forced out of retirement. The Jersey Joe story will conclude as we look back at the legacy of the fighter who never gave up. All of this in Cake Walker Part 3, Just a Left Hook.
My other books, Wrong Foo and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Foo is a prequel to my Bullshit Sue and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com for details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltail or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there, as well as filming of my various lessons, so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel, to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.